0: Hey, everybody, before we get started, we have a couple of live shows to announce. First, April 27th to 29th, 2018, we will be at Universal Fan Con in Baltimore, Maryland. Our exact schedule for that show is still in the works, but this will include a live show, and our listeners can get discounted tickets using the offer code HISTORY.
1: And for all the folks who have asked us to do a show in the Boston area, of which there have been many, we are finally on the way with a show in Quincy at Adams National Historical Park on Sunday, July 8th at 2 p.m. That one is an outdoor show. It will happen rain or shine. And we also have more appearances that we'll be announcing soon, as well as more details about both of these shows. And We will put that all at our website also at mistinhistory.com. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. Today we are going to talk about a pivotal moment in South American history, which is the Battle of Cajamarca, which is sometimes probably more accurately known as the Massacre at Cajamarca, This ultimately led to the end of the Inca Empire. And like a lot of the history of Spanish conquest in the Americas, a lot of times this is boiled down to an image of very heavily armed conquistadors sweeping through indigenous armies that were a lot larger in number, but not nearly as well armored and armed. And while there is some truth to that image, this whole thing might have gone much differently had the Inca not just been through a massive epidemic and a civil war. So today we're going to talk about the Inca Empire before the arrival of Francisco Pizarro and how his conquest of the Inca was about a whole lot more than just the one battle, the way that it's often described.
0: Before the growth of the Inca Empire, South America was already home to a huge range of indigenous peoples and cultures. By the 1200s, one of these was the Kingdom of Cuzco, ruled by a leader known as the Sapa Inca, which in the Quechua language roughly means the only Inca. This title was hereditary, and the Sapa Inca was considered to be a divine being. In
1: 1438, a man named Pachacuti became the Sapa Inca, and he started an aggressive political and military expansion of what had been the Kingdom of Cuzco. Soon, instead of being one of many individual kingdoms, the city of Cusco was the capital of a much greater empire. Within 100 years, that empire stretched about 3,000 miles or 4,800 kilometers down the western coast of South America.
0: This long but narrow stretch of territory was huge. It was home to about 10 million people living in 80 different provinces, which were arranged into four quarters. These were connected by a network of 25,000 miles or 40,000 kilometers of roads, which converged on the capital of Cuzco. Relay runners carried messages along these roads, covering hundreds of miles a day.
1: The empire was also diverse. The land itself included parts of the Andes Mountains, valleys, plains, tropical jungles, dense forests, and a desert coast, depending on where they were living. The people might work mining gems and precious minerals, raising llamas and alpacas, growing crops, making ceramics or textiles, all kinds of other things. Many of these skills, crafts, and forms of art had come from the various indigenous peoples that were conquered or otherwise absorbed by the Inca Empire, rather than something that the Inca brought with them from Cusco.
0: The empire's people were also diverse, Many of the people living in the empire weren't ethnically Inca, but sent their leaders to be educated in Cuzco. Although Quechua was the primary language, at least 200 other languages were spoken as well.
1: The Inca religion had its own pantheon and practices, which included the use of oracles, ancestor worship the care of the mummies of previous Inca leaders, and on particularly disastrous occasions like massive earthquakes or the death of an emperor, the sacrifice of children. But at the same time, when other indigenous peoples were absorbed into the Inca Empire by whatever means, they usually added Inca beliefs and practices into their own existing religions rather than abandoning their previous practices and replacing them.
0: In spite of its huge size and diverse geography and population, the Inca Empire was efficient, orderly, and very wealthy. Like the ancient Romans, the Inca were highly effective administrators. The roads and the structures and cities they connected were extensively planned to take advantage of everything from the shape of the land to water resources to religious symbolism. They included incredible feats of engineering, like the city of Machu Picchu. Lying along that huge network of roads were strategically placed storehouses to keep the runners and the military supplied. Scrupulous records were kept using collections of knotted, multicolored cords called kipu. And making and using kipu was a specialized job that involved years of training.
1: The empire's wealth was also tightly connected to its labor, because for the most part, that was what the empire taxed rather than taxing money or goods. The Inca Empire had no centralized currency or concept of a market. Instead, the state used a labor tax called Mita. The state would essentially requisition labor to do something like build a building, an irrigation system, or a set of terraces to make planting possible in mountainous terrain. The province would provide that labor, rotating through its populations so that the same people weren't disproportionately the ones serving out the tax. And this wasn't just about manual labor. The mita also applied to agricultural labor and to specialist labor, like creating elaborate tapestries.
0: Sometimes you will see this system described as forced labor, and while it is true that this wasn't voluntary, it was generally viewed among the Inca as part of a reciprocal relationship. People were working for the empire a certain number of days per year, and in exchange, they were getting whatever tools, clothing, food, and resources they needed to do the work. When it came to things like irrigation systems and new homes, they were also getting the benefit of the thing that they were building. And underlying all of it was the idea that the empire would take care of the people in the event of something like a war or a famine. There were definitely cases where the tax was used mostly or exclusively to the benefit of a wealthy leader who wanted something, but it is a lot more nuanced than simply calling it forced labor.
1: And since folks are also likely to ask, uh, while the Inca did make a practice of using prisoners of war as servants and other labor, that practice did not seem to extend to the idea that they were actual property. So you could probably describe the the prisoners of war as slaves, but it wasn't chattel slavery as we saw in like other parts of the Americas after this point, and this part of the Americas, really, after this point.
0: Ruling over and leading this empire was a layered network of nobility. At the top were the emperor and his immediate family. And this top layer could be quite large, since Inca emperors often had multiple wives and concubines, with children by most or all of them to increase their chances of having a suitable heir. The next rung down were descendants of previous Inca kings who were not as closely related to the current emperor. And then came the more distant relatives. And then last were people who weren't related to the current or past emperors, but were important in some other way, like people from families that were particularly wealthy or had a lot of political pull for whatever reason. Keeping
1: such a massive, diverse empire going meant that the emperor typically spent a lot of time traveling from one part of the empire to another. He basically had to make very charismatic personal appearances to reinforce the idea that he was a hereditary ruler with a divine mandate. The emperor's relatives and other trusted leaders also acted as surrogates in the empire's various provinces when the emperor could not personally
0: be there. It also required a huge military. Because much of the empire's expansion had happened through military conquest, there were ongoing uprisings from those previously conquered peoples. All able men had military training, and the Sapa Inca had a huge army at his command, which could be increased at any time through the Mita tax. In the 15th century, the Inca had what was almost certainly the largest military in the Americas. This
1: massive, complex, diverse empire reached the peak of its size and power less than a hundred years after Pachacuti became Sapa Inca of what was back then just the kingdom of Cuzco. But in the 1520s, two events happened in quick succession that set the stage for the empire's fall.
0: The first was a huge epidemic, which struck between 1525 and 1528. It may have been smallpox, the mumps, or both. Whatever it was, it had been introduced to the Americas by the Europeans, and the indigenous population had no natural immunity. People who became ill also experienced a range of complications, including encephalitis, hemorrhagic diarrhea, and blindness.
1: Emperor Huayna Capac was campaigning near Quito, in what's now Ecuador, when this epidemic struck. He died in 1528, as did both of the governors that he had left behind in the capital of Cusco. Multiple important leaders in both cities died as well. Huayna Capac named one of his sons as his successor from his deathbed. But that son died of the disease before he could even be informed. And then Huayna Capac died before he could be
0: informed about his son's death. This led to a civil war, which we'll talk about after a sponsor break. you're really going to enjoy the way that she gets into these conversations that feel like two friends talking, and they are an absolute delight. So, subscribe to The Women on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. When
1: both Huayna Capac and his successor died in this epidemic, it interrupted the Inca Empire's line of succession. And then what followed was a huge rivalry and outright civil war between two of the emperor's surviving sons. His 19-year-old son Huascar was back in Cuzco, where he had been spending his time among the capital's political elite. He wasn't particularly experienced as a leader, and he had his share of both supporters and detractors thanks to all this political hobnobbing that he had been doing. When the line of succession was interrupted, he was chosen as his father's successor largely thanks to his mother's sizable political pull in Cusco.
0: Huascar's half-brother, Atahualpa, had been away with his father on military campaigns near Quito. Atahualpa was about five years older than Huascar, and he had extensive connections within his father's army, including to four powerful generals who had been active parts of the military campaigns Huayna Capac had been pursuing.
1: At first, it seemed like Atahualpa accepted his half-brother's ascension to the throne. He sent gifts to Huascar and Cuzco, but he didn't go there himself. When a caravan bearing their father's body arrived back in the capital, Huascar was outraged that Atahualpa was not with them.
0: Huascar had some of his father's surviving advisors who had made the journey killed, including torturing some of them under the guise of finding out whether Atahualpa was plotting against him. It wasn't unheard of at all for newly installed emperors to have other possible heirs killed to protect their own claim to the throne. But Huascar's treatment of other nobility was alarming. There's
1: some discrepancy in the accounts here. Either Atahualpa declared himself emperor from Quito after learning about what his brother was doing, or their father's former generals went to Atahualpa after hearing what Huascar was doing and told him that they would support his claim to be emperor should he choose to make that claim. Either way, what followed was a devastating civil war that went on for nearly four years, causing extreme disruption and loss of life in an empire that
0: was barely out of a massive epidemic. Huascar mounted an army and attempted to bring his brother back to Cuzco by force. But Huascar's army lost every engagement it had with Atahualpas. A lot of this was thanks to the military tactics of the generals in charge. One of them, Chalcuchima, had never been defeated. Eventually, Atahualpa's army defeated Huascar's, and Huascar was captured and confined to a cage, and Atahualpa's force embarked on the same sort of purge that Huascar had tried before, including killing Huascar's wives, concubines, and children in a number of gruesome ways.
1: At this point, Atahualpa was considered to be the emperor, but before he could even get back to the capital of Cuzco he encountered Francisco Pizarro. This happened in Cajamarca, which is a city in the mountains northwest of Cusco. And that is where Atahualpa and his army were bivouacked at the end of the Civil War. We need to back up for just a minute to talk about how Pizarro came to be there.
0: He just sprouted in the forest. (laughs) Uh, No. Uh, So Pizarro was born in Spain in 1476, and he traveled to the Americas in 1510. While serving as mayor of Panama City, he heard stories of vast wealth to be found in South America. On November 14th, 1524, he embarked on the first of several small exploration voyages from Panama. In 1527, on one of these voyages, his navigator, Bartolomé Ruiz, spotted a large ocean vessel crewed by about 20 indigenous people. They overtook that vessel, killed most of the people aboard, and found that it was filled with the exact sort of treasure that they heard they might find in South America. This included a large number of personal adornments made of silver and gold, precious gems, finely embroidered textiles, carved figurines, ornate eating and drinking vessels, and armor.
1: Having made this discovery, Pizarro wrote back to Spain to get authorization to go on a larger expedition, He got the authorization he wanted from the crown. He was to conquer the area and make himself the governor. On December 27th of 1530, he left Panama with a small force intending to do just that.
0: They made their way slowly down the western coast of South America, which at that point, Spain had not really explored. As they did so, they slowly got information from the people they encountered about the epidemic and the ongoing civil war. Pizarro and his translators gradually pieced together that the Inca emperor was the sole authority over the empire, that people viewed him as a divine ruler, and that they saw his surrogates in their local areas as an extension of his own authority, not as an authority in their own right. So,
1: Pizarro decided to do the same thing that Hernán Cortés had done in the conquest of the Aztec Empire in what's now Mexico, starting in 1519. Cortez had captured the Aztec emperor, Moctezuma II. According to Aztec accounts, Cortes and his men killed the emperor, but according to Spanish accounts, he died after being stoned and shot with arrows while trying to speak to his own subjects. Pizarro reasoned that if the Inca emperor was really the only source of authority in the empire, then capturing him would allow him to take it over, and he could replicate in South America what Cortes had
0: done in Mesoamerica. Pizarro and his force of 168 men took a treacherous mountain road from the coast inland to Cajamarca. Under normal circumstances, he would have encountered opposition at several points along the road, but because of that epidemic and the civil war, he faced no resistance. Once he and his men got to the city, it was nearly empty, although Atahualpa had an army of between 40,000 and 80,000 men nearby. There in the city,
1: Pizarro and his men laid a trap. They hid the men and their horses, and they also had a couple of cannons, uh, in a group of buildings around a square. And then he invited Atahualpa to meet with him.
0: The night before the meeting, Atahualpa and the people closest to him had held a ceremonial dinner celebrating their victory over his half-brother. It was the sort of celebration that went late into the night and involved heavy consumption of intoxicating beverages. But Atahualpa doesn't seem to have been worried about whether he or his attendants would be putting themselves in jeopardy if they arrived to face Pizarro still recovering from the revelries of the night before. After all, he was a divine emperor. He expected Pizarro to see and acknowledge that fact. And that was how he entered Cajamarca, carried on a litter and accompanied by about 7,000 retainers, not at the head of an armed fighting force.
1: Once Atahualpa got into Cajamarca on November 16th, 1532, a Dominican friar named Vicente de Valverde approached him with an interpreter. The friar talked to him about the superiority of the Christian deity and delivered a document called The Requirement. This was a document first drafted early in the 16th century, which representatives of Spain were supposed to read to native peoples, which reportedly gave Spain the moral, religious, and legal right to conquest
0: Spain's conquest of the Americas was motivated by both religion and search for territory and treasure, and the requirement neatly tied both of those ideas together. It essentially explained that God had given the Americas to Spain through St. Peter and the pontiffs that followed. It allows the person hearing it, quote, the time that shall be necessary to understand and deliberate upon it. Before going on to say, quote, but if you do not do this and maliciously make delay in it, I certify to you that with the help of God, we shall powerfully enter into your country and shall make war against you in all ways and manners that we can and shall subject you to the yoke and obedience of the church and of their highnesses. We shall take you and your wives and your children and shall make slaves of them, and as such shall sell and dispose of them as their highnesses may command. And we shall take away your goods and shall do you all the mischief and damage that we can as to vassals who do not obey and refuse to receive their Lord and resist and contradict him. And we protest that the deaths and losses which shall accrue from this are your fault and not that of their highnesses or ours, nor of these cavaliers who come with us.
1: This is like an incredibly messed up version of the Miranda rights for Spanish conquest of the Americas. <laughs> like... Yeah. It's, it's, I,
0: ooh, that's a handy piece of paper and horrible. It is
1: handy and horrible. And although there was an an interpreter present in Cajamarca, the requirement was also delivered often in Spanish to people who didn't speak Spanish. So they would get this sort of lecture about uh, convert, submit, or die and be enslaved in a language that they did not understand, which generally people found completely baffling. Uh,
0: <laughs> and if you do not understand, it is your fault. Right. That, like, <laughs> that's the part that really is. Uh, it's all your fault that we came and did this to you. Yeah.
1: And so uh, eventually, I mean, this, this document was around for a while. I it, it was either uh, drafted in fifteen ten or fifteen thirteen. I found two different dates. Both from reputable sources, it was eventually abolished in 1556. But that—that was—that was what—that was, what, was what they were basically read their rights as conquered or vanquished peoples.
0: Their rights, which we have to put in scare quotes because those aren't rights at all. During all of this, the friar had a Bible, and there are multiple conflicting accounts of what happened to it. The one thing they agree on is that that Bible wound up on the ground. Francisco de Jerez, who is one of Pizarro's personal secretaries, wrote that Atahualpa asked to see the Bible and wasn't able to open it after the friar handed it to him closed. He said that Atahualpa finally got it opened, quote, and not marveling at the letters or the paper like other Indians, he threw it five or six paces from him. And to the words the friar had said via the interpreter, he responded with great arrogance.
1: This idea that he was supposed to marvel at the letters on the paper is in European is in European accounts of uh of showing writing to indigenous peoples like all over the world and it it really is a lot more about European perceptions of how indigenous people were supposed to behave, like that the idea of writing was this marvel. Um, when meanwhile the Inca had a system of keeping up with information that was so complicated, that we still don't know how it. We still don't know how to read it. Anyway, that was, of course, not the only account of what happened that day. T'itu Cusi Upanqui, who was an Inca emperor, following the events that we're talking about here said that the day before a group of Inca had offered some of the Spanish a drink in a golden vessel, but the Spanish had poured it out on the ground. His account said that Atahualpa threw the Bible on the ground to mirror the disrespect that the Inca had encountered from the Spanish the day before. And there are numerous other accounts of this as well. They all have their own various nuances, but all of them end up with somebody either throwing or dropping the Bible.
0: And however it took place, when that happened, Pizarro's men burst out of the buildings where they had been hiding. They massacred nearly all of Atahualpa's retinue, most or all of whom were unarmed, and they took Atahualpa prisoner.
1: Although Pizarro had been doing this in the hope of just sort of now having the Inca Empire, it did not have the immediate effect of destroying the empire or putting it into the hands of Spain. And we will talk more about that after another quick sponsor break.
2: The future is closer than you think, and it all starts in the palm of your hand. You may have heard the news, 5G is coming. But what does that really mean? How will it impact me? In this new iHeart series, This Time Tomorrow, presented by T-Mobile for Business, join me, Oswald Oshin, and my co-host, Cara Price, as we walk you through the true revolution in mobility that will change the way we interact with the world around us. From environmental science to law enforcement, entertainment, healthcare, and travel, innovation is coming. Join us as we explore how this revolution could impact your life, and hear just how close we are getting to a more connected future, full of possibilities in the age of 5G. This time tomorrow, presented by T-Mobile for Business, is now available on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you listen to podcasts.
1: force of 168 men killed most of Atahualpa's retinue. They did it with almost no losses among their own force. There wasn't really even any fighting, which is why a lot of people call this the massacre at Cajamarca rather than a battle.
0: Atahualpa's capture led to kind of an odd stalemate. The Spanish allowed him to continue acting as emperor while he was captured, and the Inca continued to behave toward him as they had before. Atahualpa promised the Spanish that he would provide them with vast amounts of silver, gold, and other treasure if they would just allow him the time to gather it.
1: Uh, It's not clear whether he just intended this as gifts, as a show of goodwill. A lot of times it's written about as uh, him ransoming himself. Regardless, though, with this offer of vast amounts of silver, gold, and other treasure, the Spanish thought it would be in their best interests to keep Atahualpa alive and to treat him pretty well. Like, He promised he was now a source of treasure. Meanwhile, Atahualpa ordered Huascar and any of his remaining supporters to be killed to stop them from making their own similar deal with Spain.
0: After several months during which he got reinforcements for his fighting force, Pizarro declared that Atahualpa's ransom had been paid and ordered everything that had been brought for it to be melted down. This was a massive destruction of Inca artwork and artifacts. But it didn't buy Atahualpa's
1: freedom. Since the ransom had been paid, there was no longer any particular reason to treat him all that well. At this point, he was just a prisoner.
0: The strife among Huayna Capac's sons also was not over. Two young men arrived in Cajamarca and said that they were the sons of Huayna Capac, and one of them... Tupahualpa, said that he was Huascar's legitimate heir. Pizarro kept this revelation secret from Atahualpa, and he kept the two men hidden in Cajamarca.
1: What followed was an attempt by Huascar's supporters to try to use Pizarro and his fighting force to their own ends. One of Huascar's former supporters went to Pizarro and claimed that Atahualpa was plotting against him, including having a military force approaching Cajamarca, Without really looking into that claim, Pizarro leveled that accusation against Atahualpa. He ordered a trial with the Inca leaders who were in Cajamarca as witnesses. Atahualpa denied that there was any plot going on, and only afterward did Pizarro send anybody to investigate whether there really was a military force on the way, including sending two indigenous men as scouts.
0: Hernando de Soto was one of Pizarro's captains, and he had become friendly with Atahualpa during his captivity. He offered to look into these reports for himself. On July
1: 26, 1533, the two men who had been deployed as scouts came back and said that Atahualpa's army was three leagues away. Pizarro's response to this was to convene a military tribunal to try Atahualpa and execute him on that very same day. De Soto got back to Cajamarca after all this was over and said that there was no army. So this has apparently been a ploy by Huascar's supporters to get rid of Atahualpa and put their candidate on the throne.
0: And with that, Tupahualpa was presented as Huascar's successor and the legitimate heir to the throne. He was crowned and swore allegiance to Spain,
1: Pizarro clearly meant to use him as a puppet emperor, but Tupahualpa's reign did not last for very long. He, Pizarro, and a retinue were en route from Cajamarca to Cuzco when Tupahualpa died. There were rumors among the Spanish that General Chalcuchima, believed to be still loyal to Atahualpa, had poisoned him.
0: After Tupahualpa's death, his supporters and Chalcuchima each put forth a different man as who should be next in line for the throne. And with the subject of who should be emperor still in question, the procession faced military engagements at least four times en route to Cusco. Generals from Atahualpa's previous army were trying to stop Pizarro from getting to Cuzco, while Pizarro's army was trying to stop the attacking army before it could get to Cuzco and possibly combine with the units that were stationed there. Before
1: they got to Cusco, Tupahualpa's brother Manco Inca presented himself as the legitimate heir to the throne. And as with Tupahualpa, Pizarro hoped to use him as a puppet. And at first, Manco Inca did swear loyalty to Spain, and he ordered the execution of Calcuchima. Calcuchima was executed by burning at the next town that they reached on the way to Cusco.
0: An Inca force made a final attempt to block Pizarro from entering Cuzco, but it ultimately withdrew. This left the Spanish and Manco Inca in control of the city and the rest of the empire. But eventually he turned against Spain, leading a series of rebellions for about a decade and establishing a separate capital in Vilcabamba before being killed.
1: Spain continued to try to install puppet emperors over the Inca Empire over the next few decades with varying amounts of success. The man who's considered to be the last Inca emperor was Tupac Amaru, who was executed in Cusco on September 24, 1572. Roughly 200 years later, José Gabriel Condorcanqui would take the name Tupac Amaru II while leading another rebellion against Spain.
0: So what's often described as Pizarro and his force lay waste to the Inca Empire was really more like the Inca Empire was still reeling from an epidemic and a civil war and multiple political factions tried and failed to use Spain against one another.
1: And the Spanish presence in what's now Peru had its own internal factions to deal with. Pizarro's faction eventually prevailed in part because he had a former partner, Diego de Almagro, killed Diego de Amagro's son then killed Pizarro on July 26, 1541, eight years to the day after Atahualpa's execution.
0: In spite of internal divisions, Spanish colonization of the western coast of South America continued after Pizarro's death. Spain adopted the labor tax idea of Mita, but moved it a lot closer to the idea of straight-up forced labor. We talk a lot more about this progression in our previous episode about Tupac Amaru II, and all of this together caused the indigenous population of this part of South America to plummet. It didn't recover to its 15th century levels for roughly 500 years.
1: A lot of the kipu that we discussed earlier were destroyed before, during, and after this time, and the ability to read them has been lost. There are still peoples in the Andes who have kippus that are important to their own community or history, and they know in a general sense what the kippu says, but not how to actually read it.
0: Although the Inca Empire fell in the 16th century, there are still people descended from Inca leaders living in this part of South America today. Quechua and related languages are still spoken as well, and the word Quechua is now used to describe indigenous peoples in Peru and neighboring countries. Yeah, if you want to hear about,
1: uh, sort of <laughs> more about the time between then and now, that prior episode in the archive about uh, the... Tupac Amari Rebellion and Tupac the II is a, a good place to start.
0: Do you have some listener mail that hopefully involves less uh, factioned infighting and torture and death? Uh, sort of.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Hit me. Uh, I mean, we talk about death and, and terrible things so often on this show. Uh, this is from Brittany. I don't think I've read this already before, if i had, I'm sorry. Uh, Brittany says, Hi, Tracy and Holly. Writing in today to both thank you for all the wonderful podcasts and to say just how much the 999th and 1000th episodes meant to me. I'm a pediatric nurse who also happens to be pediatric oncology certified. Hearing Sadako Sasaki's story was thus deeply affecting. It struck me how little has changed in the treatment of pediatric leukemia in the last 63 years. For example, the drug mentioned in the episode, methotrexate, is still the main chemotherapy used for our pediatric patients. There have been three drugs ever approved specifically for the treatment of pediatric cancer, and methotrexate was not one of them. The first two were approved in the 1980s and the last one in 2015. Fortunately, we now have other therapies like radiation surgery and stem cell transplants, to name a few, that were not available to Sadako Sasaki and others of her generation that greatly increased the survival rate, but we still have a very long way to go. Anyway, sorry for the downer of an email. I realize it is a weird way of expressing my gratitude for the podcast, but it seemed a good way of showing you how you always make me think. Even when you discuss things that I didn't miss in history class, you always have a unique way of making me think about it. Thank you for all that you do, Brittany. Thank you for this email, Brittany. I actually didn't find it to be uh, a downer, um, largely because, like we said in that episode, there was really so little that could be done at all for Sadako Sasaki when she was diagnosed with leukemia, and the survival rates today have come such a long, long way. I realize for a lot of people, it has lifelong effects on their health, even after having been successfully treated. Um, But the fact that today that's it's not an immediate, okay we're going to have to hospitalize you for the next couple of years and that will be the end. Like that to me is a huge step forward. If you would like to write to us about this or any other podcast, we are at History podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. We are also at Missed in History all over social media. You will find us at Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Pinterest. Uh, if you come to our website, which is MissedInHistory.com, you will find the show notes for all the episodes that Holly and I have ever worked on and a searchable archive of all the episodes we have ever done. And you can... Find our podcast and subscribe to it on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and wherever else you find podcasts. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Yeah, it's May 14th to 21st, 2020. And to get more information, go to defineddestinations.com and scroll down to the Roman Florence trip with Stuff You Missed in History Class.
2: The only way is through. A new podcast in partnership with iHeartRadio and Under Armour. Players, coaches, and athletes will share intimate and personal stories of performing at the highest level. Here is Canadian heptathlete Georgia Ellenwood. The reason I won is because on that day I was confident. I need to continue that mentality to understand that I can be an Olympic athlete. I can compete with the best in the world and just perform. Listen to The Only Way Is Through. Available now on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts.